Hello and thank you for joining for episode number 146 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we welcome Buke Uras. He's an architect and the author of The Balians, Ottoman Architecture and the Balian Archive published by Corpus Books. The book is a handsomely illustrated edition examining the legacy of the Balian family, whose various members served as Ottoman imperial architects for three generations in the 19th century and who are responsible for some of Istanbul's most iconic monuments, including Beyazit Tower, Dolmabahce Palace, Chirayan Palace, Beyler Bey Palace, the Nusretiye Mosque, Ortakoy Mosque, Teşvikiye Mosque, and countless others. The story of the Balian family is a fascinating one, shedding light on the key role that Armenian architects played in the Ottoman Empire, particularly in this late period, the 19th century. We talk about all that in our conversation, but before we get started with the interview, let me just remind you that you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Also remember that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Turkey Book Talk members also receive PDF transcripts in English and translated into Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published and you get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal, obviously, if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Buke Uras. The book was triggered by the opening of the Balkan Family Archive to researchers a few years ago. So I started by asking him what new documents became available with that opening and what new did he learn from it? The idea about writing a new book on Balians came because the, the Balian archive became available to researchers recently. We know for sure that Sarkis Balian, which belongs to the last generation of Balian family architects, who died in 1899, gave the entire family archive to his colleague, Leon Guregian. We don't know why he gave it the archive. It may be for political reasons. It may be for personal reasons. We have no clue. But we know for sure that Leon Guregian left Istanbul for good in 1907 and moved to Asolo, a small town close to Venice in northern Italy. So we know that from 1907, the Balian family archive was kept in the family mansion of Gureyan family for three generations. And in 2014, the family decided to donate the entire archive to a national institution, architecture institution in Erivan, Armenia. 
So from 2014, the archive is open to researchers, which enables us to have lots of new information on this prominent uh, 19th century Ottoman architect, architect family. So this was really the leading idea of a new book on Balian family. I have to tell you something important because Balians never wrote anything about their architectural ideas. They're never ideologues. They, they've never written any text on their architectural ideas. We only have one interview made with Sarkis Balian in 1875 for the magazine Revue de Constantinople by a French journalist called uh, De Caston. And in that interview, there's something extremely important. Caston says that the history of Balian family is written by monuments. I think this sentence is extremely important because the whole historiography of Balian family from 1875 until today was based on this very sentence, which means that all architectural books, history books on Balian family in 20th century were based on the built project of Balian family. So they were based on uh, photos, they were based on built monuments by Balian family. But for the first time, thanks to the archive, we can see more than that. We can see the unbuilt projects, but also we can see the design process that leads to the built monuments. This is very important because Balian's role as architects is also very much questioned during 20th century until today. Many people accuse Balian's of being only contractors and not designer architects. And this archive shows us clearly that they were architects because there are different options, there are different proposals for the final project. And it's very precious for us to be able to see this design process to, that leads to the final monumental product. So that was really the, the leading idea behind the new book on Balian family. So take us back to the beginning, really, of this story, I suppose, the origins of the Balian family and how they came to become architects. You know, what do we know about their roots? As far as I understand it, they were they have origins in Kayseri in, uh, in central Anatolia. What do we know about where they came from? Actually, we don't know exactly where they come from. There are three theories. The first theory is close to Marash. And then in the 1875 interview with Sarkis Balian, Sarkis Balian himself tells that the family comes from Kozan, which is close to Marash. So that really could be the place. But then in 1950s, the famous historian Pamukjian found out in the archives that they come from Kayseri. So in all Balian books in, 20th century, in the second half of 20th century, the origin is given as Kayseri. But in 1981, an important book published in Vienna proposed Bayburt, which is close to Erzurum and between Erzurum and Trabzon, as the origin of Balian family, which I also found different documents published in late 19th century and early 20th century, which kind of shows that they come from Bayburt, or even if they're not coming from Bayburt, Krikor Balian was born and Garabet Balian was born in Bayburt, in the small village called Lusong, which we know by sure that a monastery was financed by Garabet Balian and a plague was hung inside the monastery saying that Garabet Balian was born in the small village, Lusong, it's just a 200 house village, and the monastery is uh, financed by the native Garabet Balian. Unfortunately, the, the monastery did not reach to our day. So uh, we just have to have faith in what is printed in early 20th century. 
So there are different, three different ideas of the origin of Balian family. But we know that Krikor Balian's father was called Balikalfa. Kalfa is an, a title given to Ottoman architects in pre-modern period. So Balikalfa was a contractor and architect who came from Eastern Anatolia to Istanbul and started to work for the Sultan. His son, Krikor Balian, which is the son of Bali, is the first uh, member of the family which uses the surname Balian, and then by time it became Balian. So we're talking about three generations of architects. The first generation is Krikor. Krikor worked for Mahmoud II. Second generation is the famous Garebet Amira Balian, who built Dolmabahce Palace. After, of course, Topkapı is the most important imperial palace in Istanbul. And Garebet Balian's sons, Nikogos, Sarkis, and Agop. These are the main architect figures of the Balian family. But we have to be careful because when we talk about the Balian archive that is today in Erivan, it actually is the personal archive of Sarkis Balian only. So it does not have any drawings from the previous two generations of the family, but only the, the drawings between 1850 and 1899, so belonging to the last generation of Balian family. Now, members of the Balian family, they served as imperial architects under multiple Ottoman sultans from the late 18th to the late 19th centuries, and they had a hand in pretty much every major building in Istanbul of the 19th century that springs to mind today. Uh, many palaces and mosques, uh, and also many other kind of public works. So there's a pretty exhaustive list I'm going to give here. They include the Bayezid Tower, Dolmabahce Palace, as you say, Chiran Palace, Beyler Bay Palace, the Kuchuksu Pavilion, the Nusretie Mosque in Topane, the barracks in Gumusu, the building of the present-day Mimar Sinan University in Findakla, the tomb of Sultan Mahmud II, the Harbiye School, which is a present-day military museum near Taksim, the Ortakoy Mosque, the pavilions in the Yildiz Palace, the Hamidiye Mosque and the Hamidiye Clock Tower in the Yildiz Palace Complex, the Aksaray Valide Mosque, the Teşvikiye Mosque, the Harbiye Jail, which is today part of the campus of Istanbul University, and the Galatasaray High School, among many others. These will all be familiar sites to anyone familiar with Istanbul who's listening, which is probably most listeners, I imagine. And that's not even a complete list, but when you put them all together, it's really an astonishing record throughout the 19th century. It is actually, yes. And with this archive, we're happy to, to find out new projects or new information about the existing projects. For example, uh, the archive gave us a very important site plan of Beyler Bey Palace. Unlike Dolmabahce, Beyler Bey is a complex of different buildings. So we're talking about 15, 20 individual buildings forming the palace complex. And many of these individual buildings did not reach our day. They were demolished at the beginning of 20th century. We know their existence and what they look like with uh, archival photos. But for the first time, thanks to this site plan, we know their plans of the non-existing buildings. That's very important for the history of Ottoman palaces, for example. Another important uh, discovery in the archive is the proposals of Chiran Palace facade. That's important because Balian family's first generation built the first Chiran Palace for Mahmud II. Then Abdelmejid demolished Chiran Palace to build the new one. But then he died, Nikogos Balian died, and for about 10 years, because of all these deaths, the project did not was not realized. And then Sultan Abdelaziz recommissioned, after 10 years of absence, 
the new palace, which survived to our day, to Sarkis and Agopalian. We knew before that there were some different proposals during this 10 years gap. But now we know chronologically which proposal was proposed and by which architect. I think this is extremely important gain for Ottoman architectural history. Another important uh, find was the first museum plan in Ottoman history. It's not the first museum, but it's the first museum plan that uh, we have as a drawing. It was found in the archive, which is this architectural plan set in Byzantine Ayerini Church in the first courtyard of Topkapı Palace. It was devoted for the collections of armory of the sultans. It was semi-open museum, pre-modern museum, of course. And in the archive, we found this incredible plan showing all the rectangular exhibition units throughout the church plan, which gives us really the oldest museum plan that reaches our day for the Ottoman history. And of course, the most important gain, the discovery of the the archive of this research process, process of the book, which lasted three years, is the Azizia Mosque, which is a very important mosque, which was started to be built in 1874 by Sultan Abdulaziz, just on the hill behind Tomabacha Palace. And the construction lasted for two years, but Sultan Abdulaziz was dethroned and then died. We don't know if he was assassinated or died himself or committed suicide. We don't know. And the Sultan Abdulhamid II, who came after him, did not continue the construction because also the, a, a big war was lost to Russians and the, the economy was completely bankrupt. So there was no funds to continue such a monumental mosque. It was the first mosque to be made with four minarets after 300 years, which is very symbolically important for Ottoman history. And also the dome structure scheme was again reviving the four so-called elephant feet that carried the dome, which is very, very peculiar to, to Ottoman classical period. So there's this revival of Ottoman classical language. And also the monumental size was extremely important. The press of the time, the Ottoman press, the French press, and the uh, Ottoman-Armenian press altogether said that it would have been the biggest mosque of Istanbul. So to found, find out the final project of this mosque is extremely important, but also to see the, the different proposals that leads to the final project, to, to, to see the entire process of design is very unique for Ottoman architectural history. And that project is fascinating because, as you say, it was supposed to be the biggest mosque in Istanbul. It was supposed to be visible from the Bosphorus. It was going to be there towering uh, on the hills on the European side. And as you say, the foundations were laid. They built part of the walls of the complex and then abandoned it. And now none of it survives to this day. Exactly. The, 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 the stones were scattered around the area, a huge area actually, and there were so many big large stones that the area, even today, is called Tashlik, which in Turkish means uh, stones or lepierre in, in French. In 1950s, the famous Turkish architect Sedat Akkaldem built uh, one of his masterpieces on the retaining wall of the mosque, which gave us one of the the most exciting hybrid uh, unities of Istanbul, which all, unfortunately, was demolished. All, all, All stone pieces were completely crushed in 1980 to build this huge hotel, which exists today, Swiss Hotel, which completely erased all traces of the the walls of Azizia Mosque. 
So the period that we're talking about from the late 18th to the late 19th centuries, this was obviously a period of great changes in the Ottoman Empire. It involved the modernization, the centralization of the imperial administration. And obviously the Balian family had this key role in building numerous palaces, particularly. So Chiran, Domobace, Bele Bey Palace you talk about there. And these were palace complexes, you know, of this broad Tanzimat period. And they were built often in the kind of Beaux-Arts manner, along with Greco-Roman references. And they, in many ways, represented a symbolic shift away from focus on the Topkapi Palace. So that was the classical Ottoman, almost pre-modern palace complex. And the shift was towards these much more modern, a much more modern sensibility. Could you just reflect on that symbolic but very important shift which the Balians played a key role in through their designing and construction of these major 19th century palaces? As black as white, as black and white as you said, actually, the choice of style is never as clear as that. Yes, especially in Garabet Balian, we're talking about uh, some uh, neoclassical Krikor, definitely the first two generations, maybe yes. But with the third generation, so after the 1860s, we're again uh, seeing this uh, revival of Ottoman architectural features, which is very interesting. And this is not my personal idea. This is actually written with text by the journalist of the period. They call it the new Ottoman style. This is the definition given in the press of 1870s. And it is welcomed by all the intellectuals of the Ottoman world. So the, the Europeanization of the styles, yes, is correct for the first two generations of Balian family. But from 1870s, we see this the will to go back to the roots of Ottoman architectural features, to the classical period. And Azizia Mosque really is the masterpiece of this very idea of Ottoman revival. Uh, as they call in the, the press of that time. So we're talking about this Ottoman revivalism, which has nothing to do with Orientalism. It is much more profound than that. It has an intellectual base to it, and it is very much uh, protected by the Sultan himself. But when we talk about Ottoman revivalism, we should not be limited to the borders of today's Turkey. For example, Azizia Mosque really looks like a Memluk Mosque, Egypt being a part of Ottoman Empire in 1860s, 1870s still. So we're talking about this Mediterranean Islamic mixture revivalism. So it's not only Istanbul architecture in this very sense of Ottoman architecture, which we know today. No, we're talking about a general Islamic revival commissioned by the Sultan of Ottoman Empire. So it, it's it's important to, to see, to study how the style really changed into completely something else in the last generation of Balian family, which had this religious, political and intellectual base to it. Now, let's talk about the uh, the Dolmabache Palace, because that's perhaps the best known of these palaces that we're talking about. It's certainly the most visited among tourists today, um, and it's obviously an extraordinary structure. But there are a number of myths around it that have taken root in public consciousness. Among these are that it was built in this quote-unquote Western style, but it was also that it was wasteful, extravagant, and it was built using money borrowed from Europe, and ultimately therefore became a kind of symbol of the empire's decadence, essentially, in its later period. Just reflect on those popular ideas of Dolmabache. Are they fair, 
And um, did the Balian name become associated with these negative associations in the popular consciousness in subsequent years? I totally agree. During 20th century, Balian name was really faced with uh, a strong prejudice by Turks. So in the book, we, we tried to understand why. And we came up with three distinct reasons of this prejudice towards Balian family. The first reason is uh, an international reason, nothing to do with Turkey, uh, with the establishment of international modernism. From 1920s on, in all over the world, in all countries, there is this prejudice towards uh, all eclectic architecture, 19th century architecture, that takes its force from uh, history, histo historiography. So all eclectic figures, like Balian family, is regarded with prejudice. For example, Le Corbusier comes to Istanbul, and he stays a long time. He makes sketches. He never makes any sketch of any Balian, uh, Balian monument. And there is only one mention of a Balian monument in his writings. He says, we are going off the dreadful palace of Dolmabahce. So he really hated Dolmabahce Palace. So this prejudice is universal and it uh, very much reflects the mindset of 1920s modernists. There's another reason. It is the second reason. In Turkish his historiography, which, uh, with Ottoman historiography, which was written with the Turkish Republic established in 1923, 19th century is always seen as the period of decadence and the fall of Ottoman Empire. So Balians always are associated with, with the sultans who they worked for, and they really built the imperial palaces dear to 19th century. So with the establishment of Turkish Republic in 1923, all this extravagance and richness of palaces were seen as the decadence of 19th century Ottoman Empire and one of the reasons of the fall of the empire. Uh, so Balians, no one could avoid that Balians were associated with this decadence of the sultans that they worked for. They really were associated with the time they were in and with the sultans they worked for. And the third reason, which is probably the most important reason, from 1850s on, Armenian nationalism really embraced Balians as dear fellow citizens, intellectuals, and artists. We have many texts that we also gave in the book that greets them as the new Armenian leaders, not political or army leaders, but they are intellectual leaders. And it is very common in all Ottoman, uh, all Ottoman Armenian texts to see this uh, embracement of Balian family. So with the establishment of a monostate, like the, the Turkish state of Turkish Republic in 1923, which could never have the ability to embrace the minorities, uh, of course, embracing Balians was politically not easy. And the new historiography chose not to make them part of the Ottoman past, which uh, fortunately is changing today, thanks to very good academic studies. I think that this prejudice is really starting to, to fade off. Yeah, and it is extraordinary. I mean, for people looking from the outside, they may be shocked really to think that there, were th there was this family that was hugely influential for over a century, designing hugely important and very well-known monuments, uh, and they were Armenians. Uh, yes, but uh, we have to see that they, they were Ottoman Armenians, and they considered yeah. themselves as Ottomans. Yeah. The, yes, they were, of course, Armenians, but until Abdulhamid II, uh, especially during the time of Abdulaziz, which is the, the, the peak of the success of Balian family, 
Ottoman Armenia is really politically and socially and culturally very well established in Ottoman society. And it was never a problem for the, any Ottoman Armenian to be, to be visible. And it was considered extremely uh, correct and normal, uh, like any other fellow citizen, Ottoman citizen. And uh, they were proud Armenian Ottomans. They were very religious. Balian family was extremely religious. They were really attached to their community, Armenian community. Most of their workers, we know that they were of Armenian descent, but they were very much attached to the Sultan as well. They worked for the Sultans. Of course, they could not do anything against the Sultan because they worked for them. But we know that they, they considered themselves as Ottoman Armenians and not Armenians only. I think that's important. With Abdul Hamid II, really, when they really started to to discuss what being Ottoman was, everything becomes politically more delicate. But during Abdulaziz's time, the, the society is not that uh, harshly politically divisive, you know. So we've mentioned him a couple of times so far. A colourful character who really does leap off the page is uh, Sarkis Balyan. And he worked mostly under Sultan Abdul Aziz, who reigned from 1861 to 1876, Obviously, Abdulaziz, the man behind the idea of the Azizye Mosque that we were talking about earlier. Sarkis Balian was involved in many of the buildings that we uh, that we mentioned earlier. And he was also behind some other ones. He was behind that stretch of housing and buildings that go down the hill in uh, Akaretler in Besiktas, which is today full of uh, kind of art galleries and people taking Instagram photos outside pretty much. And I was also very interested to learn in the book that he built this island for himself off the coast of uh, Kurucheshme. And that was apparently originally intended as a factory, but he ended up living there, uh, a kind of small garrison-like island surrounded by walls. And there's one photo that you include in the book, which is very interesting. But he was a very idiosyncratic uh, character, very reclusive, very strange character. He was also a kind of independent inventor an engineer, and he got various patents across Europe for uh, instruments that he designed. You talk about all these in the book. He led a very colourful life, but he ended up in exile, accused of corruption and sentenced to jail in absentia. And in exile, he lived basically in fear of uh, Abdul Hamid II's notorious network of spies, basically. But then he was later pardoned and he returned in 1892. But he lived like a hermit after that, according to what you write about in the book. Just talk about this um, fascinating character, Sarkis. He was the last core architect of the Ottoman Empire, but he's today perhaps the most famous. I totally agree. Sarkis Balian, we can say, is the first modern Ottoman architect. This word modern means many things, actually. First of all, it is the first Ottoman architect figure whose physical features were known to general public because his photos with engravings were published in the press. This is the first example for an Ottoman architect. So his physical face was recognizable for the first time. It is uh, For the first time, an Ottoman architect is recognized by the public. Uh, that's important. It's the first architect who had his portrait painted. His father, actually, after his death, his portrait was painted. So 1850s, Balian family is the first Ottoman architect who had their portrait painted, which is very important, again, for the visibility of the architect figure. We know that he used photography as means of publicity, which is a very modern uh, idea as well. For example, when he finished Chiran Palace, we know that he prepared very beautiful albums, photography albums, photographed by Abdullah brothers, three Armenian brothers of Ottoman descent. And he sent the albums to, to different courts of Europe and the Middle East. So one album was sent to Shah of Iran, the other one was sent to the Queen of England, one to the Tsar of Russia, 
princes of all German kingdoms and so on. We found one of the albums in Getty Museum in Los Angeles. It's the one that was sent to the King, King of Spain. It's the only one that we could find, unfortunately. Uh, but it shows really the, the ability, the, the modern capacity of how to use the, the new things like photography. Photography for the first time entered with Sarkis Balian as a means of publicity to, to Ottoman architecture. That's very important, I think. Another very important thing is, as you said, himself was inventor. He studied in Paris in different schools, although he never finished. And we know by, by heart, by sure, by documents that he had for years many courses on mechan mechanics. And in his island in Bosphorus, which is the only island on the Bosphorus, he had his laboratory. And during exile, he invented two very important inventions. And he got the patent for from France, England and Germany. It's very important. It may seem a personal uh, passion, but it's not. This personal passion really became the force that triggered the complete transformation of Ottoman construction organizations. Because Tsarkis Balian, thanks to his mechanical ability and knowledge, he's the first one who brought steam engine to construction site in Ottoman Empire. This is extremely important. Unfortunately, we have nearly no images of construction sites in Ottoman uh, history, which is very sad, unlike Western world. But in the book, you will see that we found many testimonies, written testimonies about the use of these machines in Istanbul, which is fundamental to understand the success of Balian family. So the success does not only come from, the three-generation success does not only come from their ability creating beautiful buildings, but also their technical knowledge. And they could finish the buildings, these huge buildings, in a very short time, which was appreciated by the French press of the time as well. For example, Domabache Palace was is a huge palace for those who do not know. It was finished in 13 years by the second generation of Balian family. But when we come to Beylerbey and Chiran, the third generation with Sarkis Balian, Beylerbey Palace was finished only in two years. So there's a huge difference, time difference between 13 and two years. So what happened in between? It happened that Sarkis Balian brought these machines for the first time to Istanbul, which completely transformed the Ottoman construction world. Now, with the death of Sarkis in 1899, the Balian's prominent position in the Ottoman imperial system declined and the family tradition ended, essentially. Why did that happen? What were the social and political changes underneath that change? Uh, we see by documents that even after he came back from exile, although he was very productive after his return still, the family, different family members started to look for other jobs, governmental jobs. So for the first time from 1893, that we see that different members, although the Balian Atelier is still going on, still producing, still doing important works for the Sultan, even in the 1890s, we see that different family members, like, for example, Levon Balian, is looking for different jobs independent from the family atelier. So we see that there's already a big decline in the 1890s. And with the death of Sarkis Balian, and he died while he was building the, the, the home of the Grand Vizier. So 
we know that until the very last day he worked for the royal family or the court. So even after the exile, he really continued, he could continue to work for the family, the royal family. Uh, but we see, definitely we see the decline. He's no more in 1819s the, the main architect, the official main architect of the Sultan in 1890s. He is, yes, he still has the title of San Mimar, but which is an honorary title. So it's not officially the architect of the family. The architect of the family is an Italian architect, uh, Raimondo Daronco in 1990s. Then there's an Ottoman Greek architect still in 1890s. So the, the, the fall of the family, yes, there are some personal issues, definitely, but also it, it reflects the overall political climate of the Ottoman Empire that more and more becomes Turkey, Turkish element-based empire from Abdulhamid II. So with the establishment of Turkish Republic in 1923, of course, it will be an only Turkish Republic. And the idea behind this state of Turkishness, let's say, of course, will have difficulty in admiring, as it used to, the Armenian working for the government. You talk in the book as well, especially during the reign of uh, Abdul Hamid II, that uh, Western or Levantine architects came to be preferred over local non-Muslim Ottomans for the design of most public buildings in Istanbul particularly, as well as in the Ottoman delegations for international exhibitions. And I thought as I was reading, you know, that's a funny irony in a way, because, um, you know, there's this popular image today of um, Abdul Hamid as this conservative Muslim, a nativist, essentially. But he actually didn't often prefer the uh, Yerli Vermili architects. He went for these kind of uh, European styles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, politically, I think it was more uh, easy to accept maybe an Italian architect than a native Armenian. Actually, th these are very delicate issues and it's 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 not easy to 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 discuss them in a, a half an hour uh, interview. But yeah, definitely politics is part of why Balian family lost uh, the projects. Definitely. Now, for someone living in Istanbul or visiting Istanbul, I wonder if you could talk about what um, particularly noteworthy Balian buildings or your own personal favourites there are. Which buildings or structures should people particularly look out for and why? Uh, I think the Balian's buildings are pretty much everywhere, as you said. And the book starts with uh, the epitaph of Sir Christopher Wren in London. And it says, if you if you want to see their buildings, look just look around. And it's really the case for Balian family in Istanbul. You know, it's enough to simply look around to see many buildings that they built. But uh, definitely the most symbolic one for me as well should be Domobaşı Palace. Although I don't think it is for me, it's a personal thing. Of course, it's the... Most beautiful and beauty is, of course, very relative, but to my taste, at least, they have better uh, designed structures. But Domobashe really symbolizes the 19th century of Ottoman Empire, which is, as the historian Ilber Ortale put it, the, the longest century. It's a critical century for Ottoman history. And the uh, Domobashe Palace really is the symbol of this long century. So I would say Domobashe Palace, definitely. Independent from its uh, architectural values, only for what it means really for the Ottoman history. Finally, I wonder if, if you could reflect a bit on the fact that it seems that this book has got plenty of uh, domestic attention. I've seen a lot of interviews, uh, media articles, not just among specialists, but among the, the general public. Do you think there's been a rise in interest in the Balians and this broader issue of Ottoman Armenian architects in recent years? And if so, what do you put that renewed interest down to? 
Definitely yes, definitely yes. It's not only up to my book, actually. It's it's a process that started from uh, 1990s on. There were very precious academic studies, and uh, really the the first quarter of 20, 21st century saw so, so a rise in the sensibility of native Istanbul Istanbul people uh, towards their heritage. Uh, and yes, I definitely see a sensitivity uh, much better than 20th, 20th century, that's for sure. For example, they, the, the mausoleum, uh, we can call it, uh, of or the family tomb of Balian family, was redesigned just a few years ago. And uh, just for the opening of the tomb, the, the municipality uh, of the area, which is Üsküdar, they changed the entire uh, streets, uh, they redid the streets, the, the illumination of the entire cemetery for the opening day. And uh, the representative of the government was there in the opening, uh, which means a lot, I think, which really means a lot. That was Bouquet Uras. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 146. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via Twitter or via our Facebook page or all of them. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that's put together by the journalists Razie Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 